Hello there, gang. My guest today is Che Huang, founder and CEO at Boxed, and I'm really excited to have him with us today. And in fact, he's coming from his um, beautiful state-of-the-art factory in Edison, right? Uh, in Union, in New Jersey. So a little Union, bit up uh, okay. from, from, uh, from Edison. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So Welcome, Che, and uh, really happy to be talking with you. I've been wanting to talk with you for a couple of years, so um, excited to see you face-to-face, -face, at least virtually, in one of these days in person, and we'll be able to get a tour of your facility. But um, wonderful to see you virtually. And I thought that we could jump in to get your sense of where we are with the retail landscape broadly right now. There's a, you know, Regardless of COVID, there's still a ton of activity. Um, a lot of venture capital-backed startups in the space, private equity-backed, public companies trying to figure out, you know, the positioning, right? There's just a lot of activity. So I guess, how do you sort of handicap the industry right now? And then secondly, how do you think about your own positioning with the brand of Boxed? Yeah, that's, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So hopefully I could do so in a very uh, succinct manner or else we're going to talk about this for, for hours, uh, which I wouldn't mind, by the way, Bob, if this was in an actual bar with a few drinks. Then. Yes. Uh, but unfortunately, given the situation we're in, this is a dry conversation. So, um, uh, you know, with regards to retail, um, I, you know, you're never going to hear us or me in particular, so full of hubris that feels like, you know, all of retail is going to die and, uh, out of the wasteland will be the only survivors, uh, and that will be the little green shoots of e-commerce. Um, I, I don't believe that at all. Um, I think, though, with regards to brick and mortar uh, and your traditional retailers, I think the folks that have either the wherewithal to truly either pivot or invest in their online business, those folks will do quite well because they already have the trusted brand. And if they can kind of adapt their offering to the new preferences uh, of a new shopper, I think they'll be okay. I also think the folks who have not only the wherewithal, but also the guts to really change what they do with stores, what the stores look like, and frankly, what the stores are used for, I think will also be okay. Um, but I think the folks who don't have the money to change the stores or, or to invest in e-commerce, I think those folks are, are the ones that will truly struggle. Um, uh, I, I think um, outside of a very few select few names, uh, almost everyone will find the shopper just wants to be served differently uh, in the coming years. Uh, and that means their stores need to serve them differently uh, and do, do more than just be, be a regular store. So I guess um, when you look at that in day-to-day -day practice, right, um, with all of the players out there, some have a lot of money, there's plenty of others that don't, and they're, you know, in the raising money, how how do you stand out whether you're a small player versus a larger player and then and then i think also with um with your brand how are you trying to stand out yeah so with regard to the folks that i mentioned before who don't have the wherewithal or, or don't want to change kind of what they've been doing um i'm not i'm not that worried uh, about them uh, because i do feel like um if we're playing the long game here uh, over the next 5 10 20 years then I think the future, everyone here, uh, both of us will agree, and, and probably all your listeners will agree that the future is probably tilted in our favor uh, from that standpoint. Um, what I worry about is how do we differentiate ourselves from the folks that actually will have the money to compete? 
uh, and that are making big investments in e-commerce. Uh, and I think for us, uh, one, we'll have to continue to move faster than them. Uh, you know, the reality is, as a startup, you don't have more money than folks. You don't have more experience than folks. What you have is speed. And for us to continue to innovate and actually kind of change our offering is something that, that we have to continue to do. Um, next is also the brand in which we've stood for. So we invested in the brand and kind of us as a company uh, and kind of our ethos, whether it's through what we do for employees, what we do for customers, or what, what type of social stances we take. Um, we did that before it was very popular, and now we're seeing the tailwinds of that. Like when you interview our shoppers, uh, a significant portion of women, for example, when we interview them, uh, uh, one of the primary reasons for shopping Boss versus other channels is our stance on the pink tax. And today, we're still the only national retailer uh, that actually rebates kind of all the unfair sales tax we have to, we have to collect from women uh, because, you know, femcare products are treated as luxury goods items in 30 plus states. So those things were considered extraneous before. I think going forward, they will be considered uh, as crucial to differentiate ourselves. Gotcha. Um, when you think about technology and automation and robots and robotics, um, you know, how, how far off are we from having a, a good chunk of the work being done through robotics, number one? And I guess, number two, does that make the business any more efficient um, looking at costs or not necessarily that much more efficient, you know, than having humans? Uh, that's super interesting because um, we're, we're finding out real time. So, yeah. um, you know, on automation, I feel like, Distribution centers, folks that bring entire truckloads in, uh, breaks down the pallets, and then move pallets of merchandise out the other side of the, uh, out of the other side of the facility. You're starting to see some facilities being true lights out automated, like lights out automation, as they call it, because you know there's no lights because you don't need humans in it anymore. Um, so if there's no humans, then robots don't need lights to see. So um, uh, so what, what you know, there's no need. They they just know exactly what they need to do, um, and so. With fulfillment centers like the one you see behind uh, me right now, there needs to be uh, picking and packing of individual items. And so I'm just going to pick up random items here from this can of like Lysol wipes. And then... Uh, Send those over here, please. Tissue. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> and I'm, it's like basically liquid gold, hand sanitizer. It is, yeah. Like, uh, if you just noticed, uh, if, if, you, if this was a sports show, you could replay. Like, I picked one thing up with one hand. The other one, I kind of hooked my finger into and picked it up. And then the last one, I needed two hands to pick it up. Um, the dexterity of the human hand is still very valuable in that kind of environment. So from a FC perspective for e-commerce, we're not there yet. And I'd, I'd have to imagine we're not, we're not going to be there for another five to 10 years. It would be my gut. But from a distribution perspective, yeah, yeah, we're starting to get there pretty quickly. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Then I guess... Um, where you're able to in your kind of business, you can employ robotics, but it but where it really starts to get some traction, it sounds like it's a good number of years off anyway. That's right. You know, it, it's amazing. Like, um, you know, when you think about the human body and the mind and everything that goes together with it, it's like, you know, I see that, I recognize what it is, and I know how to pick it up. It sounds so simple, but when you when you need to teach a robot or a computer to do that. It's like, it's, it's amazing the amount of processes that, that need to take place for you to come to that conclusion. 
are you guys experiencing a, a surge, you know, the COVID surge, like a lot of folks are, they're just, you know, they're experiencing a lot of business um, or is it kind of uh, not that much more than you've been seeing pre COVID? Oh, we're definitely seeing a surge. Um, and one last thing on automation is that um, what's going to be interesting will be um, if, if the coronavirus and kind of personal safety and hygiene is, is it will be, if it becomes part of the mental kind of uh, scar tissue that we all have over traumatic instances, then uh, it'll be interesting to see if automation is much, as much about safety as it is about efficiency. Because what you see That's behind me, yeah. there's probably 20 to 30% less touches of your box before it comes to your door coming out of a facility that like, looks like this versus someone pushing a cart around the facility. Um, yeah. And so it, it, you know, it's not in the general kind of uh, discussion right now, but I, I don't know. It could be very interesting going forward. Um, so sorry to bring us back to automation, yeah. but that's no, been that's on my mind. That's actually interesting. Yeah, you think about um, safety and you also sort of think about efficiency. I mean, as you mentioned, um, you know, if a, if a human can pick and pack faster than a, than a robot, even making a couple of mistakes on the packing or the picking, um, and, with, and with minimal injury, we know that a robot cannot feel pain and therefore, you know, they can't get injured, but they can certainly uh, have software issues or maybe, that, you know, a piece <laughs> of the finger or the wrist gets bent and, yeah. you know, and they're not that, able to pick That we pack. know above, you know, I, right. you, you, I'm sure you watched all those videos of like uh, Boston Robotics, they're like kicking the dog and I'm just Oh like yeah, they did gymnastics little, one the other like, day. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. that oh, thing is going to remember one day, you know. Like, yeah. I wouldn't do that if I were you, you know. That's true. They're going to remember everything. Yeah. They had a, um, this is about a week ago, they had a gymnastics one where the robot was going through like the Olympic gymnastic um, routine. And it was kind of, you know, it was kind of uncanny. At what point in time, uh, when you're in the demo, at what point in time do you feel scared as a human in the same room as that thing? You know what I'm saying? Like, right? Like, when it's a little, like, cute dog, you're just like, oh, whatever, it's a dog. But now that it's like, doing Olympic level exercises, you're like, what if they thing suddenly, what if as a joke, someone programmed it to like, not like me, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I'm like, I oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> but, uh, I'm right, like, off, make sure the, tangent, but, uh, <laughs> no, but that's actually kind of funny. Like what if one of your engineers you know, was mad at you? They're like, okay, I'm going to program X robot to not like <laughs> Che anymore ever. Exactly. <laughs> Every every time it sees Che, it's going to try to trip Che in the hallway. Like, right, like, right. You know. How do you how do you find that engineer too? Let's find that person. Exactly. Uh, so let's you know, on, on on the point of the surge. I was going to say we definitely are seeing uh, a surge. Right. Uh, right. I don't think anyone listening to this will will find that being a surprise. Yeah. What's really interesting though is that when we first started kind of seeing that bump in traffic and and sales, it was anyone's guess to whether this is a permanent shift or not. Um, but what we're finding in the data now that we have 90, 120 days of data is that um, the cohort that has come in is the stickiest mm -hmm. by a, a diff in an order of magnitude versus our previous cohort. So uh, um, definitely spending more, coming back more often. So I think that bodes well for, for some of the shift yeah. uh, being pretty sticky. Without sharing pr uh, proprietary information, um, are you finding that, that a good portion of those folks are 
net new customers that have somehow been scouring scouring the web, you know, looking for paper towels and for toilet paper and, you know, uh, they found you or is it, um, you know, existing? Uh, it's definitely the former. So there are net new, um, and the demographics are changing. Um, we're seeing an older audience come in, um, uh, definitely to not only online, but certainly to box. Um, and so it's kind of forced us to rethink a lot of things that we do, whether it's the assortment we carry, or it's even kind of training uh, our customer service associates uh, that, hey, there's going to be a new swath of questions coming in. You know, traditionally, we skewed younger, tech-savvy folks. Um, but now it's like you, sometimes you get, you get questions about, like, how do I use the website? Like, how do I buy something, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. it, it's just a sign of the times, um, uh, I think. I think that's great. Um, are you finding that the net new folks have more questions to your customer service operation or is it pretty much self-service? I mean, are they asking silly questions about, you know, how to use a platform or are they, you know, relatively knowledgeable? Um, I don't have, I, I usually like to speak with data as a backup. Anecdotally, uh, I, I think the new customers are uh, kind of sending in uh, um, kind of per capita, if you will, more tickets than in the past. Um, but we don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. You know, customer service can, can actually be a good way where they get to understand even before they make a purchase that they're going to be taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's, um, let's take a step back for a second because I'm, I'm interested in your background. So you were, um, you spent 10 years practicing law. And so, um, when I think about lawyers and then I think about entrepreneurs, I don't think about them in the same thought or the same sentence. Uh, you know, lawyers are particularly relatively conservative. Their career path is set. They know the next 40 years I'm going to practice law. And so I'm curious about what prompted you to say, you know what, I've been in this for 10 years and I've had enough. I've made a few bucks, and uh, but I'm going to go and launch a business, and I am going to move back home into my parents' garage to launch that business. So I guess you know you must have had that conversation with yourself, like, okay, I've I had freedom for ten years. Now I am going to move back home without an income. I'm used to a certain lifestyle. You know, what was the dialogue that you're having with yourself, and um, why did you ultimately? say I've, you know, I've had enough with law and I'm going to go and launch business. I, you know, that's it. That's me. Yeah. It's a big step. Even if you, like if you were 23 and you did it right, it's difficult to launch a business regardless of your age. But if you've been out there for a while and you have the lifestyle going, right, that's it. That's a different thing. Yeah. Um, for all those folks, uh, listening, uh, that are considering law school, there's your answer right there. It's like, you know, once you do, once you pull duty as a law firm associate working in the corporate department, uh, you know, you question many things about life at 3 a.m. looking at a document uh, yes. and, and being that you haven't been home to shower in a few days. So, uh, but, you know, joking aside, I've always um, found an interest in, in business. Um, I think uh, the law did help me kind of understand the rules of the game. Um, but I, I didn't practice very long. And so, uh, I think it was, uh, it was critical to starting up. Um, um, but also I think, um, uh, you, you tend to look at some of these documents and you feel like, man, you know, successful business folks, of course they're decently smart, but 
actually they're just bold and they took advantage of an opportunity they saw. Uh, and a lot of them just got lucky, including me. Um, uh, they got timing right or they got the execution right. Um, and that's kind of what I saw at the law firm. You look mm -hmm. at all these successful businesses and how and the genesis of them, you're just like, yeah, you know, that's a fairly smart person that just took a chance and it worked out. And so I just, when I saw the right opportunity, uh, that's, that's kind of what I did. And so um, your first order of business, right? You, you move back home and you're like, okay, I'm gonna launch this business. What was that like for the first, let's call it three to 12 months? Were you immediately raising money or were you more thinking about, I'm just going to go and start to sell some product, you know, and get some revenue moving? What was your, where was your head? So luckily, because we had a successful venture previously, uh, previous to Box, we did have, uh, we did raise a very small seed round um, from folks uh, that knew us or kind of uh, that had backed us in the past. Uh, and so that was good. But when I say seed round, man, it's totally, it's a sign of the times, right? Like a couple hundred grand, a few hundred grand. Yeah, few hundred yeah. grand. You know, that's not even like, now it's now a couple seed million. Rounds these yeah, seed yeah. rounds are like, what, three to 10 million? You're like, what is yeah. that? You know, um, but, uh, um, but back then it was a few hundred grand. Um, but we still uh, 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 were more interested in getting product market fit and finding out if this could really be a good, uh, well-received business before raising up, raising more money. So, um, so that's, that's why to keep costs low, um, you know, we're just like, all right, we're going to ship out of my garage. Uh, yeah. And to the question before, um, it sucks working out of the garage. I mean, looking back, it's like, oh, awesome. And it was sexy. It was fun. You know, quintessential American story. But, you know, when you're like 30-something sitting in a garage, like selling right. toilet paper and Oreo cookies, you just feel like, well, you know, again, just like at the law firm, 3 a.m., you're like questioning life, you know, right. like you're sitting there right. at 2 p.m. in a garage questioning, how did I go from there to here? Uh, right, right. Yeah, so it is, it is pretty hard, man. Yeah. And so the, those first kind of, that first 12 months or so, you had raised a small seed round. Did you have friends and family helping you? Did you have enough to hire some staff on a part-time basis? What, you know, what was the operational structure like within that first year so luckily we had the same four co-founders at the same same co four co-founders of box were the same core group of our last company our gaming company um, so in terms of specialized uh, talents and what we did in our swim mm -hmm. lanes if you want to put it in those terms we all knew kind of what <laughs> we did well individually um, we then hired uh, uh, out from there um, but unfortunately it was, we only had a few hundred grants. So it was mostly under market and people really had to bet on, yeah. on us. Yeah. Um, so, um, so it was certainly dicey, you know, um, we raised a lot of that money through friends and family. Um, but what was interesting was that the first time we started a company when you, and this, this goes for anyone watching or listening. It's like, first time you raise a company, if you raise from friends and family, they're like sitting back to like, mm, I don't know about this. You know, like, am I ever going to see this money back? The second time I felt like I never want to put anyone in that position. Uh, so I'm not going to raise money or we're not going to raise money from friends and family. And then the opposite happens. Your friends and family are going to think, wait a minute, like you're denying me a chance to make some money with you. So what did I do to spite you? Like, why are you not allowing me to invest? And I'm just like, Oh gosh, you know, life lessons, man. It just, consistently evolved and so that was what we had to deal with the second time 
And maybe it's that they were seeing that there was, you know, venture interest or other folks that were interested in the next round and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to get a piece of that perhaps. If there was no interest, they, they probably would have said, oh, <laughs> you know, we're good. We're good right now. The, um, the one thing I, I felt, you know, we made a lot of mistakes. One thing I feel, felt like in the early rounds that we did correct was that um, uh, when we talked to friends and family, I told them that I can only take your investment if you truly treat this as a donation. So um, uh, if, you, if you can, one, afford it to be a qualified advice. investor to do that. Yeah. yeah. But two is that like, this is your one-time donation to me in our friendship. And if I never return it, you can't ever blame me for that. Um, and so after you invest in this, I want you to write off just what in your mind, at least mentally, right, that right. you ever invested. Um, that and, is great and, advice. You know, yeah. Yeah. I would, and I would do that anytime if I, if I got friends and family to invest. Yeah. In. One thing I was just thinking about is the, um, is having more than one founder of a company. Um, mm -hmm. On one hand, if you have three or four, you can split the duties and the risk, and that's wonderful because you can get more done in the first 12 months than a company with only one founder. And then I guess the flip side of that is that you're gonna have battles, there's gonna be personality issues, you know, and so forth. How did you guys kind of work through that? And, uh, Curious how many of your co-founders are there still? Are they all there at the company? Yeah, I was going to say, Bob, did you buy you're assuming we worked through it. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Assuming you're assuming we worked through it, you know? Uh, you know luckily, um, to answer your question, all four co-founders are still at the company and very active. Yeah. Um, uh, and so we're still here. That's and, great. And so I guess, uh, uh, empirically, like we have kind of worked through kind of the different challenges. Um, and there will be challenges. I think um, the one thing that, Someone, I, I, I think I read it somewhere, and it, it, it's the only advice that I have for other people uh, with co-founders, um, is that you definitely, if you can, you should have a co-founder, uh, at least one. Because I think Sunday nights, when you're looking at what you need to accomplish the next week, you know, you need a shoulder to cry on and be like, hey guys, you know, or, or hey, uh, <laughs> are you looking at the same list I am? Because this is gonna be a rough week. Um, and that's really helpful. Um, to share the, 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 the kind of work burden, but also the emotional burden is, is helpful. Yeah. Um, the other advice um, uh, that, that kind of sunk in my mind was that you should, however you split the equity, there's no tried and true formula. The only wrong number is evenly. Um, uh, Why do you because, say that? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's the... As, as if this is going to be a nice long run and it's a big successful company, Inevitably, your individual lives and your, your, your way of life, your, your kind of situation in life will change. Um, some folks might get married, some folks might, might, might uh, kind of want to just spend more time with their kids and quit the company. There, there's just like all sorts of different things going on. Or other folks just might not find interest after year one. Um, and kind of for us as co-founders, it's the approach we had. And so that folks who know maybe that, yeah, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not in this for 10 years, are you crazy? You know, um, those folks naturally kind of took a little bit less in the beginning and, and or, or we divvied it up uh, uh, differently so that there is, there's no one kind of feeling like, man, I'm doing double the work and you have the same shares as I do. Um, gotcha, gotcha. So that's been, 
that's been healthy, I think. So that makes sense. I mean, I guess if, um, you know, if one of the co-founders wants to take a step back, sure, you know, that's one thing. But if you all are, you know, four senior level types of people generally working, you know, the same amount of hours, I mean, I would imagine it would be difficult to have different uh, yeah. tr tranches of equity, but yeah. Yeah. So I think it's short-term pain and then long-term you're, you're answering some of the questions that would have come up long-term. Yeah. Because yeah, on day one, everyone's working the same hours. Everyone has the same fervor. So there is like, wait, why am I getting less than you again? You know? Um, but then years out, especially for us, like seven, almost eight years out, that, you know, um, uh, that's, uh, um, yeah. that's, that's something I'm glad we sorted out. What's the size of your uh, staff right now? The number of employees there? Um, we have on corporate, on the corporate payroll, we have probably about a little under 200, so probably 175 these days. Okay. Corporate, and then facilities. You know, you're gonna have hundreds of people like all over our different facilities around the country. So. And um, the yeah. facilities, you're kind of ramping up the staff as you need them, and ramping them down, just kind of depending on the volume. Um, we try to keep a pretty consistent uh, level of staffing. Yeah. Um, so I just did an all hands with our facility here today. And, you know, when I, when I got up there, you know, I just, you know, it's a, a lot of familiar, familiar faces. And that's a good thing, you know, because um, uh, you get regularity of hours uh, and you get to, especially with automation, they're, they're fully trained um, on automation. Um, and so uh, it's a good thing. Um, versus if you constantly ramp up, ramp down, it, you know, it takes a few weeks of training for someone to quote unquote be dangerous on some of the automation we use. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so to realize efficiency, you need continuity. Absolutely. And when you're hiring people, you have what is called your uh, no asshole policy. <laughs> and I guess I can say that because yeah. we're not, we're on the Bob Johnston network. We're not on NBC <laughs> or, you know, ABC. So I can use that word. So I guess with your no asshole policy, it's interesting to me on practical terms because I mean, it's, it's so often the case that startups that are moving fast are looking for, or they are solely looking for the best skill set, and they're not looking at behavior. But when you have this tenant of, we don't want assholes here, you have to look at the behavior too. Um, what are some of the, or, you know, what's the tick sheet, if you will, what's the checklist <laughs> when, when you're interviewing a person that, that is going to kind of help you gauge whether they're an asshole or not. It's really hard. I, I'm not looking for cultural fit. I think cultural fit is starting to be a pretty dangerous term because it's an easy way to start going into groupthink. Um, I'm just looking for someone who can carry a decent conversation. We don't have to think alike at all. Um, in fact, you know, I, I, that's definitely one of the things I'm not looking for. Um, I'm just looking for someone that has, can carry a delightful conversation for 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and if during that time, it's difficult for the person to hide their ego, uh, or, or overall not rub someone the wrong way in 15 minutes, it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to be working 15 hour days together. And so, and we're going to disagree on many, many things. And if this is an interview process and I already like kind of was like, what, what is this, what does this person say? You know, um, it certainly doesn't bode well for when we're, you know, 
days in a row spending 15 hours together. So yeah. that's yeah. all that I'm really, it's not a hard, a hard kind of uh, tick sheet. Um, that's all I'm really looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to recognize it anyway, right? Because you're, you know, you interview a lot of folks and, you know, you're growing fast. So I think you can recognize whether a person will be a fit behavior wise, um, you know, and, and clearly they're going to need to have the skill set. And I'm sure that um, at this stage of your growth, most people that are applying for jobs there, you know, they're going to have the skill set. You know, it isn't like this yeah, is the first, you know, like year or two where you've got to take talent that's maybe less experienced or whatnot. But That's right. And, you know, when you look at our, our management team, when you look at all of our professional backgrounds, I mean, if you just read it, I was looking at it the other day. I was like, this, this is like the Star Wars bar, man. Like, you know, there's like every species in the planet <laughs> is represented on our management analogy. team. Yeah. You know, it's like you got people with almost 40 years experience at a big enterprise. You got startup people like me and you got, you know, uh, big established tech company people, but never had a smaller startup. And, and so we don't need to agree. All I'm looking for is that when we don't agree that we're respectful and we kind of we work it out uh, yeah. and that, it, that the knives don't come out, you know? And so yeah. that's the, uh, that's the most important thing. It is. It is particularly when you're moving fast. Um, switching gears to your customers, right? Like how do you think about in the retail space and in particular in your sector, you know, you're dealing with commodity products more or less, right? So how do you think about um, keeping customers loyal? building a sense of community, which in your industry might be a weird term, right? But um, if you want customers to be sticky and to be spending money for years and years with you and to be really happy and, and prices are great, products are great, how do you think about um, creating community within your base? I'm still trying. Uh, I feel like, um, uh, and you know, to be perfectly honest, I feel like um, we, as we've gotten bigger, we've gotten a little bit away from that. Um, and so how do we get back to that? How do we make it a fun experience? You know, um, providing samples, handwritten notes, um, kind of, uh, surprise and delight freebies, you know, those are the things that get people saying that like, you know, I didn't expect that, um, uh, from them. And, you know, if all things being equal, like you said, and I can get some of these products anywhere, then I'd much rather spend it with them. Um, so that's something that we're heavily working on. Um, I, I do get the feeling that um, there's probably an intersection of uh, uh, where community meets benefits, like cost benefits of the community. And you're seeing some startups, or I can't even name some startups, some gigantic companies throughout the world uh, start to marry those two. Um, uh, you know, here in the U.S., an early example would be Groupon. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but when you look at China, like there's Pinduoduo, which is like a gigantic company now. Um, and so you get the community to buy together uh, to trigger certain discounts or benefits. I, I, I still think no one's really done it really well here in the U.S. just yet. So um, certainly that would be another way to, to kind of build community. Well, it seems like you've got quite a bit of loyalty. So maybe it's your branding and it's your marketing efforts and, you know, uh, they are better than what others are doing. You know, that could be half of the battle. Um, we interviewed a... Uh, retail banker about a month ago and we were talking about um nutrisystem and nutrisystem spends 250 million dollars per year uh on marketing alone 
just to keep the consumers churning through their platform. And I don't know what the churn rate is, but if they're consistently spending that much, then I imagine there's something, um, there's something that is challenging them uh, to keep those costs down and to keep folks maybe staying on the platform a little bit longer. Having said that, if you're using that kind of platform for too long, then the product isn't working, you know, because, you know, it's weight loss products. But, um, yeah, it, it uh, seems like there should be some kind of happy middle where yeah. you don't have to spend a pile of money on marketing every year. And all the while, you can build this sense of community and you're nurturing folks so that ultimately, like, when you look at a 10-year cycle, your costs are lower in year 10 than they were, you know, in year five on a net new cost structure basis anyway. Um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a tough game when you're dealing with consumer commodity marketing dollars, precious totally. money, and it's a noisy Totally. I, I feel like, um, the, the, uh, the, the thing about our business is like you said, we sell, uh, uh, a lot of commodity kind of CPG products. And so we try to differentiate it with, uh, formats. So having you save money by buying a little bit more, um, uh, the good thing about selling uh, CPG is that you naturally have a reason to return. Like these, I mean, the wipes, right? You're coming back for these wipes. You're going to use these things. And so once you do, I think if we provided good service on time delivery at a decent price, there's not a lot of reasons why you shouldn't come back and spend with us again. So that's a theory. Well, in practice, obviously, you know, it's a tougher game than that, but, um, but in theory, um, that holds up. Well, I mean, I think the big innovation with Amazon a number of years ago, um, for me anyway, was that um, they invented this one-click purchase where you literally just click once on the product, went into your cart, and you can buy it. Like saving, like just the number of clicks. If it takes me one or two clicks versus four or five, I love that, right? So like... There are ways, even in a commodity space, where you know you can innovate, and I think Amazon was brilliant with that technology years I, ago, right? I mean, it came out years ago, but like at that time, it was very, very innovative. I'm so glad you brought that up because um, when we think about convenience, um, we're not talking about getting the box to your doorstep. That's that's table stakes for ordering stuff online. Like you know, getting things delivered is just like. That's not going to wow anyone anymore in, in 2020. Um, so part of that is going up the funnel. Uh, and it's part of that basket building experience. You know, on, on average, the average consumer in box without fresh food buys about 10 items. Uh, and so picking, hunting and pecking throughout the site or the app to add 10 items that you need to your basket, it's not easy on a lot of the big retailer websites. It's actually really hard like because there's like, 20 sellers of Doritos and they might have three different pack sizes. And so allowing a very busy mom or a very busy dad to come in. Yep. I need that. I need that. I need this. I need that. All trusted sellers, trusted brands. And then to check out with a hundred dollars in the cart. Um, that's part of convenience these days too. Absolutely. And I mean, look, just as you say, like that, that shopping experience as you're, as you're, play, as you're looking around the site and looking at products, I mean, if there's 
whatever you can do to just streamline that process is, is I think really where the innovation is. And you can see the difference, you know, some yep. companies versus others, you can absolutely see that the experience is um, better with some and with others, not so much with my local grocery store. When I log on their website and I'm just looking for certain types of products, like let's say that it's a yogurt or something or whatever, like, it's difficult to navigate through the brands. It's like they haven't thought through the hierarchy of, of brands versus price versus product, right? And it's such an easy fix if they spend a little bit of time on that. You know, they'll be able that, to solve it. I'm so glad you mentioned that as well because in, like for a lot of these folks, especially in grocery, they are master in-store merchants. Um, and right. Uh, you know, they know exactly what to place where and where the traffic is and how to put this sign next to this. But when it comes online, it seems like they don't care. They're just like, put it up there. People will buy it. And it's like, yeah, some people will. Um, but, you know, that same kind of artful um, uh, experience offline that they've curated oftentimes doesn't translate online. Uh, and that's something that uh, I think not a lot of people appreciate or know. Right. And you can create a very artful experience online if you if you do it right but, yeah. but it does take some time and some thinking and probably i think it takes different kind of talents than what the grocery stores have on staff they probably need to get some folks that kind of know know the online world a little better and you know they are all transitioning right now but um it it may just be also like hey got to get the right people in here you know to advise us on this the crazy thing is that if you took a lot of, and not all grocers, right? But if you took a, a, a lot of what grocers say about online and their strategy online and what they do online, and you just pretended it was offline and you played it back to them, they would be like, they would never be successful. If you just say, hey, we're gonna call someone to help us uh, manage the store and we'll put it up there and we, I, we think it'll sell, you know, cause people, you know, people come into the site and they know us. Like, if you said that offline, if I went to a grocer and said, yeah, we're going to open a box store, and they asked me what the strategy was, I was like, we're going to put stuff on a shelf, and we're going to call a third party to manage the store for us, and it'll be all right, you know, like, um, yeah. people will come, you know, <laughs> they would yeah. be like, no, that's not going to be all right, you know, but that's what they say about online, so I think that's the difference. Yeah, and it's, and it's definitely a harder game than people think. You can't just create a store online, even with, you know, the Shopify's of the world out there. You know, you've got to have a real strategy to get your customers in, or it's just going to be a mom and pop shop without real yeah. growth, you know, which, which maybe it's okay if it's a side hustle for you and you're selling, you know, necklaces or whatever, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's probably a combination of both talent plus really thinking through navigability, you know, with the website. Yeah. Um, question for you. And I guess your growth is pretty interesting. I mean, you guys have been around a while, right? When did you launch a business officially? What year was it launched? Uh, our first full quarter as a national business was Q1 of 2014. 2014, okay, right. So when you think about kind of past six or seven years or so, there's obviously been zigs and zags as there is with any startup, right? Um, when you look at the key inflection points where you've said, okay, we have a big hurdle, right in front of us. Um, when you look at those, how, how did you get through them, right? So like, what was the dialogue and the conversation that you were having with your co-founders around this and your team? And what's sort of coming next that's 
that's not challenging, but like what's coming next that's a, a big item for this industry overall that all of you are thinking about, okay, there's this next big theme or trend coming, we need to be ready for. Yeah. Um, so on the point of how do you get through it, because you're absolutely right, it's like a roller coaster, man. Like running a company, it doesn't matter what you do, but running a company, yeah, life in general is like a roller coaster, right? So um, the only advice I have there uh, is that I think what we did better this time in over the last seven years was that um, we didn't let ourselves get too high or too low. Like at our first startup together, it was like a constant. You let yourself emotionally get high when things were going well. And then mm. the next day when things went opposite and you took 10 steps back, you're just like, oh my gosh, why did I do this? You know. Um, and this time it's just like, hey, one foot in front of the other. We know this is going to be a long ride. And we just, great day, good. Get ready for tomorrow. Bad day, too bad. Get ready for tomorrow. Um, uh, I think it's the only way you can really survive both physically and emotionally uh, throughout so many years in a, in a pressure cooker that is a startup. Yeah. I um, think that's great advice for founders that haven't been around the block once or twice before. Um, you know, it's so easy to let your emotions run you ragged or get so excited that you can't sleep, right? Like you can be so jazzed that you're not yeah. sleeping yeah. long enough, or you can be so down and ridden with anxiety that you're not sleeping either. And I think ultimately, if you, if you can get a, a decent amount of sleep, try to keep some levity. Just as you say, like on Sunday night, looking at the schedule of things that are coming up like over the next week, hey, let's just have a little, a little bit of levity here. And yes, this is going to be a tough week, but there's going to be many more of those coming. And there'll also be peaks too, right? There'll yeah. be lots of wonderful weeks where you have closed around or you had your best quarter or whatever. So I think um, keeping a relatively level head is crucial. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and then to your question about what's next, I, I, I think just how are we going to, as an industry, service the demand that's coming in? So if, if, if kind of all uh, or a significant portion of the traffic is sticky, then then the industry is going to have to move faster than it's ever been that it's ever been forced to before. So, um, uh, so a lot of these questions that folks, including us, thought we had maybe three, four, five years to figure out, suddenly, mm. you know, gone compacted into 90 days. Uh, and now it's like, all right, if these customers who are getting home delivery are suddenly saying, well, yeah, I should have been doing this all throughout the last few years. Um, then there's just not enough capacity for, for a lot of this stuff. And not, that's not, not just grocery. That's just yeah. e-commerce in general. And you're starting to see supply chains be stressed. You're starting to see last mile delivery services be stretched in. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. there's a reckoning coming for the whole industry. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, UPS, you know, they must be having a surge as well. But I yeah. mean, if, yeah. if you look at how delayed things are, you know, with UPS, I mean, you, you almost wish for the old days when the government was running the U.S. Postal Service and things actually were mailed on time. You, it, this will be there in two days. It will. I don't know that we want the government necessarily running the last mile, you know, of, of electronic commerce nowadays. But, but um, there's, there's got to be a cleaner way to figure out the, the last mile here and probably... Um, we're going to figure that out, probably be forced to figure that out, you know, because of yeah. COVID and just trends perhaps permanently shifting. 
just as yeah, you right. had mentioned earlier. I mean, probably these are going to be rather permanent shifts. So you know the, so sca the scary thing, Bob. Yo, I'm sorry. The, the scary yeah. thing is that it's being stretched right now in the middle of, uh, of course, this pandemic. We're not even in a peak for shipping. Like meaning that wait till Q4 comes around. Traditionally, we stretch the shipping uh, kind of networks in in Q4 during you know obviously the holidays. So I don't know in a middle of a pandemic what a peak during a pandemic is going to look like. I don't think there's enough capacity in the whole country to be able to deliver all these boxes. This is a very good point. Time, so. Right. So it, it, it's going to be wild, man. Like we're going into really weird uncharted territory here, which makes it exciting and kind of harrowing and terrifying at the same time. Well, it does. And with Q4 coming, I mean, you bring up such a good point with the holidays is that you might have had your favorite shop, you know, your local store that you would go to purchase some of the holiday gifts, and you may not be able to do that. You're, you're going to have to buy them online, ship them off to all the relatives and your friends, you know, and so yep. forth. And yeah. that's going to cause some significant, you know, logistical challenges. No doubt. Yeah, don't be surprised. If you're this, if you, yeah, if you suddenly see me driving my car and delivering your box box and you we'll, you'll know exactly we'll see why. You exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, it does look like the CEO driving that truck around. It's like, yeah. you're like, yeah, right it was. <laughs> do, yeah, doing his job, doing his job. Well, we're getting to the top of the hour here, but um, I have a couple other questions that we ask each guest if you are game for it. And you mentioned earlier that, that um, you looked at the questions that I had shot over to earlier a bit. So, so if these are a surprise, that's okay. But um, <laughs> so... So the first one is, um, what is a contrarian view that you hold, which you are 100% convinced is true? And it could be robotics is going to eat the world, right? Or, um, you know, the Amazon stock price is as high as it's ever been, or the Yankees are never going to win another World Series, right? But just, what's a contrarian view that you've sort of, maybe you've, you've held a long time, maybe it's about entrepreneurship? Um. Oh, that's, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I think I'm not a Knicks fan, but I think the Knicks are going to win a championship in the next five years. Oh, uh, I, like <laughs> I like that, actually. Yeah. I'm not a Knicks fan at all, by the way. Uh, I watched them growing up, but I'm not a big Knicks fan. Um, but uh, No, that's a, that's a good one. I, I really <laughs> like the handicap on that, too. Yeah, that's a... I, I I just feel like, and this is why I think that, one, for statistics, it's just they've been bad so long that how, how, could, how could it stretch? go longer the other is that uh, if you if you think about the luck of a Knicks fan you know they're always like so down on themselves because the Knicks haven't been good in so long um, that the ultimate irony would be that uh, uh, they um, they kind of do really well for one season which keeps the current ownership happy and everything else staying the same and then they then have to live through another 50 years of of kind of terrible performances by the Knicks. Uh, uh, so okay. uh, yeah. I don't, it, it, it would just be so poetic for the Knicks. Um, but, um, you know, I, I hope they win, you know, just being kind of uh, uh, a resident. Um, but, uh, but you know, that's my contrarian view. Uh, and I'm sure even Knicks fans that's will great. say, I don't believe in that. <laughs> no, that is, that is a, a great one. And, you know, look, you think about these teams that have been in that position where they've been waiting a lot of years, you know, to win a, to win a cup or a, or a series, you know, or what have you. And they all seem to get their turn, you know. The yeah, Red Sox yeah. finally got their turn after 80 years plus. Cubs finally got their turn. Totally, Nets, man. Nets even, right? So if there's, you know, 
<laughs> I, I also learned that lesson sometimes the hard way in fantasy football. I leave kind of the underperformers in for way too long because I'm just like, I know, you know, like statistically speaking, they've got a big game coming up. You know, there's no yeah. way they can have zero catches over a stretch of four, four weeks. Um, and sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. What's your favorite platform for the fantasy stuff, for fantasy sports? I'm old school. I still, I still use Yahoo because uh, our, oh, okay. our yeah. high school, my high school league uh, was on it, and we oh, cool. just never. Every year we hold a vote on shifting platforms, but we're still. Everyone's like, nope, because uh, everyone thinks shifting platforms or doing something will give someone else an advantage. So everyone's like, keep it all the same, you know. <laughs> Smart. Don't yeah. play games, Kamish. You know. Right, right. Uh, that's actually a pretty fair way, I think, to to run it. So the the other question I had for you is um, what's on your browser in terms of sources of industry information and news, uh, plus any of your passions, whether it be the fantasy sports or whatever else, what are the windows that are typically kind of sitting open on your browser each day? And I love to ask this I, question of entrepreneurs because they usually have, you know, a wide I assortment thought, uh, of <laughs> What's in my browser is actually – uh, a Slack message saying I'm actually really late for my call. <laughs> for, for your five o'clock call, yeah. That, that is one of them. But uh, uh, in general, though, uh, my news these days is pretty varied. Uh, I like to see kind of how everyone's thinking about things. Um, so whether it's a conservative site, whether it's a very liberal site, mm. I like to read it all. Um, sometimes, like, uh, certainly, you know, coworkers walk by my desk and they're like, what are you reading, you know? Um, but, uh, I, I don't, I, I read it all just to see different points of view. Smart. But in general though, uh, I like the, um, I, I really like, uh, um, some of the, uh, uh, newsletters that I subscribe to. Uh, one that I think gives a very good smattering of, of overall, um, uh, interesting, some quirky headlines as well is the one from Quartz or QZ. Um, that one's quite good. And that one's constantly in my browser. Um, uh, and so, cause they, they, you know, it's, it's, there's some levity. There's some news. Um, yeah. So overall, like, um, it, you'll see it all the time. Excellent. On, well, well, if you think of any more, you can shoot it over, and we will add it into the show notes. And uh, you know, we want to make sure we have all the fun stuff in the show notes <laughs> here for people. So, well, Che, I really appreciate you joining. And um, as soon as we're finished with this COVID stuff, hopefully soon, I will uh, personally swing over there, and we can do a recording right in your facility. I think that that'd be a lot of fun. Oh, that, that would be, man. Uh, that'd be really, really fun. And it allowed me to stretch my legs. You know, I've, you know, just like you probably, I'm going meeting to meeting without even going anywhere. So I know, I've been firmly, firmly planted in the seat for the last like eight hours, I feel like. So, um, uh, so I, I'd really like that. Bob. Well, thank you again, Che, and uh, really appreciate your time. Have a great rest of the evening over there. Awesome, man. Thanks, Bob. Thank you.